Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Authority. I recently sat down with Daniel Hurst, President and CEO of Whitehawk Energy, who came back onto the podcast to talk about their latest transactional and financing activities, as well as break down some of the recent developments in midstream and LNG infrastructure that's been happening in the market and its effects on gas pricing going forward. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Daniel had to say. All right, Daniel, good morning and great to have you back on the podcast. Whenever you're back, there's always something to talk about. So we're looking forward to jumping in. Tim, thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Quick recap. We'll kind of do Whitehawk up till January 2023. That's when you last came on was the end of January. So, you know, that was on the heels of the, the press release on the $105 million entrance into the Haynesville with Mesa. Uh, prior to that, you guys did a $52.5 million transaction in the Marcellus. That was press released in February 2022, I believe. Um, so just give the quick recap on that, you know, what what the portfolio looked like at that time in the Marcellus, in the Haynesville, and then we'll jump into January 2023 to current. So it's been a it's been an incredibly exciting couple of years uh as we built Whitehawk Energy and uh and our thesis is a reminder uh, when we created Whitehawk uh, over two years ago now was that there were fantastic assets that were amalgamated by the top private equity firms in core natural gas basins. And those private equity firms need to exit over time. And we felt uh, we could be a large scale buyer where we acquired 50, 100 million, 200 million dollar plus tranches of those assets uh, from those private equity firms, as there were not and are not other large scale buyers, at least not very many of them. We know, obviously, the public mineral companies well, and they primarily focused on uh, on oil and liquid. So we saw a big opportunity to acquire royalty assets on the natural gas side in scale at uh, attractive values to us. Now, importantly, uh, and I say this to, to all of our investors, it doesn't mean it's not a, attractive values to the sellers. So uh, the sellers have done a great job. They came in, uh, that is the private equity firms earlier on in, in the life of uh, a basin. They took additional risk before there was substantial development activity in some cases. Now there's more production and more cash flow as a result. We're acquiring a de-risked asset with still a tremendous amount of meat left on the bones. And so, yeah, big kudos to the private equity firms uh, for the work that they did. We come in in a, a more de-risk state. And, you know, when you create a company, you know, you have a thesis and we had a thesis, but you you don't really know whether that thesis is going to necessarily bear itself out. And we very much seen that uh, that our thesis, at least the initial stages of it, come to fruition. And what does that mean? It means today uh, we own minerals covering 850,000 gross unit acres in the core of the Marcella Shale and in the core of the Haynesville Shale. Split about 475,000 gross acres in the Marcellus. That's 90 plus percent, 95 percent operated by EQT, Range, and CNX. 
We have about 1,200 producing locations uh, across our positions. We have 200 wells in process and then an, another 900 undeveloped locations. In addition to that, uh, we have, of course, the Utica Shale, which underlies our entire position, which we look as, as further upside over the coming 5, 10, 20 years. In the Haynesville Shale, we have 375,000 gross unit acres. We have uh, another 1,200 producing wells or so there. Uh, we have 300 plus uh, wells in process, including permit and permit application. Uh, and then we have 1,000 undeveloped locations. 82% of our production comes from Comstock, Chesapeake, Southwestern Energy, and Atha. 82%. So top tier operators. In fact, across our two assets, uh, the public market cap is over $50 billion of our operators. In the Haynesville, we cover one third of all activity level. So a substantial portion of all activity level occurs on our position. In the Marcellus Shale, 40% of EQT's core locations, undeveloped locations, are on our position. So we have the material portion, that was our thesis uh, going in, was to own substantial assets in the core of each basin operated by top operators. We've amalgamated, I think, a world-class position. Uh, we're just getting started. We have to think about how our acquisitions have played out because, you know, I know there's been, there's sometimes commentary or thought around when and how we've acquired our assets. I think it's extremely important with each of the transactions we've done that, you know, for example, the first, the Marcellus transaction, you know, that has been stated was a marketed deal. But for us, uh, we've followed those assets for years. The marketed situation, you know, took various turns. And what we do, I think, extremely well is we hang around the hoop. We stay very close. And then at the right time, we insert ourselves. It doesn't mean that we're a high bidder by no means. In fact, we may just be a person that's there at the right time to be able to act. And, you know, I, I would say in each of our deals, and I'll use the Marcellus, you know, in the Marcellus deal, which we did a year and a half ago, that was before the kind of fundamental landscape for natural gas changed, i.e. we bought those assets prior to Russia, Ukraine, which we've talked about previously, prices then moved materially higher. We then hedged after prices had moved materially higher. And today we're hedged into 2027, I think at an average price of $4.18. So the value proposition for us has been fantastic. I think it was a fantastic outcome for the portion of the sale for the seller on the on the Haynesville side, again, we stay around the process, we stay around the process, and then at the right time, uh, and you'll remember we talked in the end of January. Well, it was, yeah, it was pretty clear by early January that there was no winter. Natural gas prices had already moved down materially. And then we were able to be around the hoop to take advantage of it. I think it's extremely important. And this is my advice to anybody listening who's looking at deals is be patient, be patient. We have been patient. We have been methodical and we deliver on what we say. So a seller knows when we're around, 
that they can count on us to execute as we say we're going to do. It's something I pride myself on and have for 20 years is delivering on what we say and being patient. I'll interject, Daniel. Right. I can just say the counterparty did the transaction with and Marcellus said Daniel delivered on what he said he was going to do. And Darren came on the podcast recently and on the record said, Daniel and team have executed on what they said they're going to do. And they've been a pleasure to do business with. So I just want to give you a little plug there. And, and so it's not just hyperbole. It's, you know, direct feedback from the industry of folks you've recently done transactions with. No, that that's great feedback. And I appreciate the kind words. And, you know, as we as we all know, this is a small industry, uh, not just the mineral side, but the midstream side, the EMP side, you know, it, it's incumbent on all of us to work well together. Well, good stuff. Thanks for that recap. Now, kind of January to current date, let's talk, let's start with the $105 million acquisition that you announced. What's the status of that? Have you fully funded and closed it yet? Are there still tranches left? And how's that played out? Yeah. So, you know, this goes back to my point about patience and delivering on what you say you're going to do. And really, I think speaks to the thesis that we had with respect to being a large scale buyer of natural gas minerals from private equity firms is, as you're alluding to in our purchases, not just the Haynesville purchases, but our other purchases, by being patient, by building credibility, we've been able to structure transactions where we create real win-wins for the seller and for us. So that Haynesville transaction, you know, allowed for a structure for us to acquire pieces of it over time. And so we bought uh, our initial piece. And, and so we acquired a tranche after the announcement. And we re- we acquired our most recent tranche uh, in early August. So if you think about the environment and natural gas prices over the last year, and kind of think about it over, you know, in January and think about it all the way through August, we've been able to structure deals with great partners like Darren and others to be able to make sure that we're creating a a great situation for both the seller and for us. And I, I think that's an important element that has that by being patient, by building credibility with sellers and then executing on has really given uh, Whitehawk an advantage and given our investors uh, an advantage to be able to own world-class assets like we have. And then you, in August on the 9th, you press released the uh, a new financing facility of $100 million with a new partner. I know it wasn't disclosed in the press release, so I'm not going to ask you to do that. And then a $20 million funding and closing with Mesa, which you just alluded to. So I guess at a high level, just talk strategically what that means for Whitehawk, both currently and in and in the future uh, from a financing capability on deals. Sure. And again, I hate being cryptic. And by the way, I hate just talking energy. I really want to get into the fact that you're still not on Twitter. Like yeah. I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast is on Twitter or nearly everybody. And you need to be on Twitter. So tell me you're committing to getting on Twitter. I publicly commit by the end of the year, Tim Powell will have a Twitter account. It's on, it's in the plans. Don't worry. I was just at a a Tony Robbins business mastery event and I was looking, you know, at working on my business, not in my business and, you know, plans for the next few months, three years, five years, et cetera. And, you know, given how prominent my content platform is as part of my overall strategy, 
just thinking that, you know, what am I not utilizing properly? And Twitter was the answer. So I appreciate you calling me out. It's it's good uh, accountability. And uh, I appreciate you. You'll be the first handle I, I tweet to or X to whatever it's referred to now. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it's referred to, but you should be on. And I, I love that you're, so you do Tony Robbins uh, seminars. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a huge advocate of that. It's a big part of my personal development. I've done 11 over the years for business oriented, a couple with my wife on the personal relationship side. And um, I brought friends and family over the years. It's amazing. Um, yeah. For, for those, and I, I've never done it, but for those who don't know much about Tony Robbins, I highly recommend, I believe it's on Netflix, uh, the I Am Not Your Guru documentary of a Tony Robbins seminar. It is amazing. I actually may go watch it again tonight. The reality is, the reality is Tony offers a great framework for how to create and be a creator. And you can be a creator if you're a teacher. You can be a creator if you're a uh, a landman. You can be a creator if you're an entrepreneur. And but it's about creating the framework for creating that vision and how to do that. But also, and where I, of course, really you know also like it, it's about the energy and how to build that energy and put forward that energy into the world and be able to interact with others to be the most successful at whatever it is that you're choosing to do. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to all of our podcast sponsors. Looking to ramp up deal flow for your minerals and non-op ground game? Since 2019, the Texas Mineral Company has closed on over 120 deals, totaling 110 million in value with deal sizes ranging from 50K upwards of 5 million. Whether you're looking for white space, permit, duck, PDP, AFE, or wellbore-only deals, the Texas Mineral Company has got you covered. For more information on how to source deal flow from the Texas Mineral Company, please email Toby Martinez at toby at thetexasmineralcompany.com. Over the past 20 years, Riverbend Energy Group has been the definitive leader in the non-op and mineral space where they are actively acquiring minerals in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, the Williston, and the Eagleford. Following their $1.8 billion sale of their non-op platform in 2022, they are also back actively acquiring non-op interests in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, and Williston. If you have minerals or non-op working interests in these areas that you would like to sell, then please visit www.riverbendenergygroup.com for more information. Farmers National Company has oil and gas experts located across the country ready to provide you unmatched convenience and service for your land management needs. Whether you're looking for turnkey management of oil and gas interests or simply looking for an advisor to help you sell or lease your minerals, Farmers National Company has you covered. Learn more about Farmers National Company's team of certified mineral managers, landmen, attorneys, and accountants by going to fncenergy.com or reach out directly at energy at farmersnational.com. Does your team ever struggle with employee turnover? What about right-sizing your team to fit your company's needs over time? Do you have the right accounting systems and software in place to maintain control and visibility on all your cost centers? If any of these things are challenges in your business, then Opportune's back office outsourcing could be the right solution. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Yeah, it's well put. You know, I, from a content perspective, I don't think we're short of quality content and education out there, whether it's podcasts, 
on certain sectors like this or or what have you, general personal development, different industries, et cetera, et cetera. It's just there's so much at our fingertips. And so his content is is great because he goes out and he canvasses the experts of the world in, in various silos. And then he is a great communicator. So he condenses it in a very digestible way. But the reason I've continued to go back over the years is that, you know, it attracts an incredible peer group of people from all over the world who are driven, who have big hearts and are just in a vibration that is very hard to attract at scale on day-to-day life. I I like to think I'm lucky to be in a space like Minerals where the people I interact with in business are high quality people. And so I'm lucky in that regard. But when you go to these events, it's just an incredible environment to be in. And so I, I really, I pay just for tapping into that environment and beautiful things always happen. I'll give you a, a small story and then we'll get back to Minerals. So at Business Mastery, second or third night, you know, we're, we're we're talking about, you know, kind of manifesting growth in the business. And you do that for for personal investment, security and providing for your family, but ultimately to grow and give back, right? Philanthropy was kind of the driving message at the end. And there was a bunch of shares in the in the audience of things people do, things that people people are planning to do. So it's very inspiring, right? And it's a great palpable energy. There's a room of a thousand CEOs, just to give you an idea, entrepreneurs, a lot of money, a lot of creativity. So you can imagine what kind of things are being said. And at the end, Tony talks about a cause that really touched his heart years ago is called Underground Railroad. And it's about saving young girls from sex trafficking. And it's a really ugly part of the world. But this organization has done tremendous things to save these little girls lives. And so he was really touched by it and started partnering with them and raising a lot of money for them through his platform. And then three years ago in one of his seminars, a guy gets up and says, this is unbelievable. I'm going to quit my job and dedicate my life to this cause. But I have an idea to bring technology in my background to do it in a more cost-effective way. And so that guy called, launched a company called Marici, M-A-R-I-C-I, and they lowered the cost of saving a girl from 3500 to 500 and basically, if you think if you ever watch mafia movies or narco movies, you know, the tactical approach of mapping out a network and then taking down the the kingpins, if you may, and collapsing a, a trafficking network. These companies doing it the same, but with AI and, and a whole fleet of of, of different technologies and, and people. So really, really amazing stuff. Right. And so we, we do a short video, two minutes about the cause and meet the founder. And Tony gets up on stage and for the next 20 minutes, the room raised two and a half million bucks. It was, it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. And then the founder who's, he's based in Indonesia now, he videos in and you get to watch his face the whole time as the money's being raised. There's one of those live fundraisers where you can see the bar and the number change. And I don't know about you, Daniel. I mean, I love work, but you know, that's, that's the meaning of life. And that was a pretty incredible night. I mean, I don't think I slept. I was just on cloud nine all night. So I I think we saved 5,000 girls. They've sent emails, you know, what the money that night raised helped do was collapse one of the biggest trafficking rings in the city in Indonesia. I believe it was Indonesia, maybe another country, but pretty cool stuff. So no, no, it's absolutely amazing. And I was actually at, uh, a uh, book launch last night and a book launch party for Lee Cooperman, uh, who's been a mentor, friend, partner, investor for a long, long time. And uh, 
Yeah, uh, he was uh, quoting, I believe it's Andrew Carnegie, uh, he who dies wealthy dies poor. And I think I just got that slightly wrong. But his book is about his path from the Bronx to Wall Street and philanthropy. And he is uh, part of the Giving Pledge with Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. And, you know, he talks extensively about the impact that he has. And he's on his way to donating all of his money, billions of dollars before he passes away. And if not, his kids and grandkids will finish off uh, giving away their billions of dollars. And that's truly what uh, creates, you know, in my opinion, the the greatest uh, human experience. And just back to the energy aspect, uh, for those who do follow me on Twitter at DanielHers3, and yes, that's a plug, follow me on Twitter or X at DanielHers3, you'll see in my, my byline, I quote Einstein, when the quote I use is, everything is energy, and that's all there is to it. And so, Tim, you mentioned, you know, manifestation, you mentioned vibration. And for those who are listening who don't really understand what that is, look it up. Vibration, manifestation, these physics elements are very, very important in life. And it's how we act. It's the type of energy we put out in the world. And while I say everything is energy and that's all there is to it, which is a quote of Einstein and is perfectly appropriate for our energy sector, What I'm really referring to is energy vibration and the ability to uh, magnetize and create what you want in life. And that's what we're doing at Whitehawk. It's what I'm doing with my philanthropy. And I really do consider that a cornerstone of my life, as I know you do and we talked about. And I know so many people in the energy industry do. You talk about an an industry with a heart. This is as good of a group of people as there are, bar none. You know, in all the, not to get on a tangent, but in all the negative press on gas gets with, you know, ESG and all that, and, you know, the, the planet's getting dirtier and all that crap. I really, you know, it would seem self-serving, which is why it doesn't get published. But I really wish it could be disclosed how much philanthropy is is done by oil and gas companies and executives and the trickle-down effect of that in the world. Because you and I see it every day. It's it's pretty impressive. So it's a, we were part of a great industry and, and we're very blessed. But to answer your question which you probably may forgot what the question was, is our announcement and uh, our funding uh, in early August. Uh, we announced that a, and I can't say the name, but I would say one of the most prestigious firms, investment firms in the world, committed $100 million of capital to Whitehawk. Uh, fund, we funded on $20 million of it, I suspect, because they've told me, uh, to the extent we want to draw substantially more uh, they're very interested in, in investing a lot more than that in Whitehawk. And for us, that does several things. One, it just further validates the work that we're doing, the value proposition that we're delivering for our investors and for those institutional parties. You know, we have multi-billion dollar family offices and we have individual investors who invest $50,000 in Whitehawk. We have a great platform, but what that does is having that is it gives us literally the full band of access to capital from individual investors who are looking for dividend uh, and total return potential over time, which I think there's very you know substantial total return potential, individual investors all the way to the some of the largest and most sophisticated investors in Whitehawk 
which allow us to take and acquire assets in larger scale. Again, having our fundamental thesis that we just don't have much competition at the 100, 200, $300 million size level in the natural gas mineral space. So that partnership you know, does a couple of things for us. It further validates what we're doing. And two, it provides us even more access to take even more deals down. We, I think we have an unmatched asset quality already, but we want more scale. We want more size. And we want to take advantage of the current natural gas environment, which is relatively depressed. And that may be a good segue into talking about the current natural gas price environment. Yeah, I mean, let, let's just talk kind of from January to today. I'm just going to run around for everyone listening. Just do a recap. We're going to look at Henry Hub and we're going to look at rig counts in the two basins you're in and just kind of see it month to month. So just bear with me here. So January, $3.27 in MCF. Haynesville has 72 rigs. Appalachia has 52. Um, February, $2.38 in MCF. Haynesville has 73 rigs. Appalachia has 51. In March, $2.31 in MCF. Haynesville has 72 rigs. Appalachia has 51. So rig count staying fairly flat. Natural gas prices is down about a buck at this point into the first quarter. April, $2.16 in MCF. Haynesville rigs are at 70. Appalachia rigs at 52. May, $2.15 in MCF, Haynesville rigs 64, Appalachia rigs 50. So now Haynesville rigs start to drop a little bit from 72 in January down to 64, still fairly flat in Appalachia. In June, $2.18 in MCF, rigs now down another rate to 56 in the Haynesville, and Appalachia dips to 48 rigs. And then finally, July, $2.55 in MCF. This is the last month I got reporting on the rig count. 52 in the Haynesville, another drop uh, of four rigs and 48 in the Haynesville. So what was interesting to me looking at this, you know, everyone kind of watches price. So it's down, you know, it's rebounded a little bit in the last few months to around $2.50-ish. Rig count in Appalachia is pretty stable through this. And rig count in the Hazel's gone from 72 to 52. Now, one way, uh, the, the takeaway for me on this was, all right, you know, kind of the headlines around Appalachia are best rock quality in the U.S., maybe in the world from a natural gas perspective and F&D and what it takes to get the natural gas out of the ground. Cons to the Appalachian Basin, takeaway capacity, right? And we'll get into some macro updates here with MVP towards the end of the episode. But that's one of the challenges. However, you know, and, and so takeaway capacity is pretty much, you know, it's butting up against max capacity at all times. As gas prices go up and down, though, rig count stays fairly stable. So kind of an interesting dynamic there. Whereas in the Haynesville, your proximity to the Gulf Coast, you're going to, you know, as LNG exports take off in the future, you're right there. There's no midstream constraints. And so that that's very, very positive. And there's great rock in, in parts of the Haynesville as well. But rig count in this lower gas environment has suffered. And so I think not a double-edged sword, but just a, a different dynamic there from Appalachia. So I think there's something to be said about having assets in both. And you guys do. Um, and you're one of the few that do have a Haynesville Appalachia one-two punch. But kind of from January to today, and then just in general, when you look forward, when you're considering the pricing and the rig dynamics and other things in the market as you review deals. What's Daniel Hurst headspace and 
and and the White Hawk team internally as you're looking at opportunities? So it's I think you've just laid out exactly how we think about things, or maybe I was laying it out in my head uh, when you were going through it. So we very we've been very deliberate about the position that we built. So as you probably know, as others may as others know, fifty percent of U.S. natural gas is produced in Appalachia and in the Haynesville. So half of U.S. natural gas production comes from those two basins. We, you know, the Marcellus is pipeline constrained. Uh, we'll talk about Mountain Valley Pipeline, and that's going to add two BCF a day of export, which is great. Uh, but it's generally constrained. Adding two BCF a day is not nothing, though. I mean, that's going, you know, that's roughly you know eight percent growth that we'll see seven per seven to eight percent growth out of Appalachia as far as production, but. It's basically constrained. So we think of Appalachia, given the economics, as an incredibly favorable base layer of cash flow. And so your upside, basically, when you have as large of a position with the established operators, public companies developing, your upside is higher natural gas prices. So you're going to benefit, as we all know, in the mineral and royalty space, dollar for dollar as prices rise. Now, you're not going to have that, if I may, that beta to increasing volumes when prices spike and people drill more. On the flip side, because the economics are so attractive in Appalachia, you're not going to see production fall the way you do in the Haynesville or in Oklahoma or you know other plays that are less economic. And certainly Oklahoma is less economic than the Haynesville. So the Haynesville for us offers us that, that beta, that upside, because you have 100% of the benefit when prices rise, plus you have additional production as operators respond to that higher prices by ramping production, plus you have the access to the Gulf Coast LNG export facilities. So we love the Haynesville, but I don't think the Haynes, you know, the Haynesville and another more marginal basin that's going to fluctuate is the best way to design a stable company. And I'm, I, I love upside, but I like downside protection. And so that's how we've designed it. And we're 70% today, Marcellus. We're 30% Haynesville. Now, when, when you look at our acquisitions, we also take a, and I mentioned this before, we take a, conservative approach, I think, in that we hedge out a substantial portion of our production, putting that in kind of contextualizing that more. We're 70% hedged the next 12 months. We're 60% hedged the 12 months after that. We're 50% hedged for the 12 months after that, and then 25% hedged through 2027. So why? Well, you mentioned those spot prices, and those spot prices are not good. But as we all know, or many of us know, is the natural gas prices in a contango form, meaning prices are higher next year than they are this year. Prices are higher the following year than they are this year. So we're hedging out increasing pricing and increasing cash flow to $4 plus. And we think that's a, a highly favorable business model. And uh, we have all of the upside from accelerated development in the Haynesville we have upside from you know now Mountain Valley Pipeline, which we never assumed would get done, from additional volumes coming out of the Marcellus. That's very good for us. 
that also, I mean, arguably should very much help pricing as well in Appalachia. Very good for us. So that's kind of those two aspects. Going back, though, to the third aspect, which is where we were. And I would challenge anybody. And then you can email me, text me, or DM me if you actually do this. Listen to the podcast back in January. I'm pretty sure I said to you, because my view was when we spoke in January, we're not going to see natural gas prices move up until the first cold snap in the fall, in the 2024 winter, unless something out of the blue happened. And I had one person say to me, what about a hot summer? And I'm like, okay, that could help, you know. And by the way, it's helped tremendously in burning off the storage where we would have reached exceptional levels and maybe even uh, reached full capacity on storage. So that's been tremendously helpful. But our working view, really beginning kind of mid-December, was that natural gas prices were going to be challenged the way you've described it. And if they were going to be challenged, one of two things was going to happen. Either rig counts would drop, which we viewed as quite favorable, because if rig, rig counts drop, production drops, and then prices will probably recover more quickly. And then we'll do very well on that recovery more quickly because rigs drop, production, U.S. production drops, and then uh, supply-demand balance moves up the pricing. That would be aspect one. Aspect two is rigs don't drop, which will extend low pricing for longer, but we'll do well anyways because we're in the basins in a material way that capture 50% of U.S. or produce 50% of U.S. volumes. So we'll make it up on the volume side. I mean, we would, we, I kind of prefer that our producers respond to the environment that we're in, reduce rig counts, be disciplined. And I think we'll all do better over a longer period of time with that type of discipline. But the beauty of our model is we win this way and we win that way, as you know. So our working thesis, frankly, I think the Haynesville has been more resilient than I was expecting. You know, it's down, but it's right on our models. And again, having the diversified position where we cover a third, thank you, Darren, for that, for doing this, a third of the entire play and having 82% of our production from four operators allows us very strong visibility with those four operators, three of which are public, as to what their activity level is, which, of course, we're tracking day in, day out, both using what they say publicly uh, as far as their capital expenditure plans, uh, their drilling plans, their completion plans. And then, of course, you know, privately, we're tracking through our, our data analytics and, and everything we do, which... Yeah, I mean, I think we're really right on what we would have expected, probably a bit ahead of expectations. And then with our hedges, it's just a very satisfying situation. So we've already kind of mentioned it, Daniel, Mountain Valley Pipeline. I'd like to go through kind of all the major announcements in the last, call it six to 18 months around infrastructure that's going to affect the natural gas market, uh, namely pipelines and, and LNG build out in the Gulf Coast. So we've already mentioned Mountain Valley. I think People at a high level are familiar with the red tape involved with MVP, and I personally thought it would never get pushed through. I think a lot of folks in our space who underwrite deals just assume that would never get built and nothing else is going to get built because you you had to, right? But June 3rd of this year, President Biden signed some legislation that approved that all permits and authorizations necessary for the construction 
uh, an initial operation of Mountain Valley uh, would be approved and that the applicable federal offices and agencies would maintain those authorizations. So that, you know, that's kind of a big deal. And then later on June 24th, the legislation that required the Secretary of the Army to issue all the permits and verifications necessary to complete the construction and allow MVP to move forward. So at this point, and this is on the the website of MVP, the plan is to have construction finished by the end of 2023. And that's going to bring on, let's get these specific stats here, an expected two BCF a day of, of capacity, 303 miles of, of pipeline between Northwest West Virginia and South Virginia. And yeah, what does that mean to Appalachia outside of the additional capacity? What does that mean to your position and the, the mineral exposure you have there? Uh, just talk to me. What do you think the impact of that will be? Yeah, so I've been following MVP for five years. You may remember, we may have talked about, I did an activist campaign back, you know, five plus years ago, uh, where we accumulated uh, nearly a billion dollars worth of stock in EQT and pushed for the separation of the uh, midstream business from the EMP business, as well as a change in management. All of that ended up happening. Obviously, Toby Rice came in and has done a fantastic job. Love Toby. That said, we've been following this for a long time. And I I did not, I mean, I certainly didn't think it would ever happen. And uh, I say that I thought a year ago, and people may remember there was this, uh, there was the what was called Build Back Better. The bill, people you may not even remember, Build Back Better was the name of the legislation last year to invest, you know, another couple trillion, depending on where the number landed uh, in the economy. And Joe Manchin was standing in the way for the Democrats of getting that done. And Joe was saying, uh, West Virginia senator, Democrat, but centrist saying, well, I'm not doing it. This is going to cause further inflation. And you need to agree to the Mountain Valley Pipeline. They ended up agreeing on the Inflation Reduction Act, which some argue is poorly named, but was a pared down version of Build Back Better. And as part of that, Joe Manchin said, uh, and Chuck Schumer agreed that we would do Mountain Valley Pipeline. So that was great. However, Joe was a little bit left at the altar uh, in the sense that uh, the Democrats said, well, we didn't do the deal with Joe Manchin. Uh, that was Schumer who did it. We're not approving the Mountain Valley Pipeline. This was last fall. So he already supported you know, Inflation Reduction Act. That went through. Manchin didn't get the MVP pipeline down. And we're like, wow, that was not great. So once and for all, uh, it seems as though, you know, and what you just read, you know, was further challenged. Supreme Court further ruled Mountain Valley Pipeline is going to get done, not wood. And it's not done till it's done, but uh, it seems as though it's getting done. And that's going to add two BCF a day of pipeline. Now, what does that mean? It's like I described with rig count for us, you know, it's going to cause production to go up. We never assumed production was going to go up, but that's very good. You have the most economic basin in the United States, the Marcellus Shale. Operators, you have an additional two BCF that's about 7%, as I was saying, 7 to 8% takeaway increase. You'll see production rise. Now, you'll also see, I believe, over time, basis improve 
because you have more ability to move volume out. There's an, there's and this dovetails into the other projects, and I don't know if you want to name them, but there's these tremendous LNG export facilities that are coming online over the next two, three, four, five years. So today we export 12 and a half to 13 billion cubic feet a day of natural gas, which is about 13% of US natural gas production. By January 2026, that uh, 13 BCF a day will be up to 20 BCF a day. By 2027, we'll be at about 25 billion cubic feet a day of export. So let's just talk that through. And this is, I'm not a permable. I'm a person who's constantly interested in where prices are going to be. But, and, and people can poke holes all they want, but I'd like them to actually walk me through the, the actual numbers. We have seven BCF a day of demand increasing just from LNG exports over the next two years, right? Where is that seven BCF a day coming from? Set aside MVP for a second. Well, well, let's not set it aside. Let's say two BCF a day of that is going to come from the Marcellus. Now it's not because you just explained it's going to Virginia. So, but that's going to allow volumes that were otherwise going to Virginia to go elsewhere. That's the beauty of a commodity. So if you have two BCF a day of new volumes coming out of Appalachia, let's just say that takes your seven BCF a day of additional demand for LNG exports down to five BCF a day. Well, Let's talk about the Permian and associated gas in the Permian. That's going to play an important role. Well, how much is coming out of the Permian with associated gas? Well, you're producing in the Permian today, eh, give or take uh, 20 BCF a day, probably a little bit less, but let's say 20 BCF a day. So if you look at oil growth out of the Permian over the next couple of years, do we see volumes rising by you know more than 10%? probably around 10%. And so if you take that, that's about two BCF a day. You talk about takeaway pipeline that's being added out of the Permian, that gets you around two BCF a day out of the Permian. That leaves you three BCF a day short for the LNG export capacity that's coming online over the next two years. So to stimulate additional development activity, prices need to be higher because the Marcellus uh, is producing as much as it can, as we talked about. You've got what you can out of the Permian. Now it's the Haynesville, right? So you're going to see production rise in the Haynesville. That's going to be muted by the large cap operators who don't simply step on the accelerator with production, but have to also pay out cash flow to their shareholders. So they're not looking to grow production massively out of the Haynesville. And so then it's going to matriculate into other basins that are less economic. What is that going to do? That's going to move natural gas prices higher. Now, I'm saying this, but so is the market. That's why forward curve in 2025 is at $3.95, because Mr. Market knows that there needs to be higher prices to incentivize that additional 7 BCF a day of demand. Oh, by the way, just from LNG export capacity. Let's also talk about uh, electric demand. We generate more electricity in the U.S. from natural gas. Uh, around 42-43% of U.S. electricity comes from natural gas. So that's extremely important because if you see, forget if you believe, but if you see the transition to electric vehicles, and we're up to around 6% of sales 
I believe six to eight percent of sales are electric vehicles. The more electricity, the more electric vehicles we have, the more electric demand we need, which means the more natural gas we need to generate electricity. So electric vehicles, very good for natural gas and natural gas demand. Number two, which really should have been number one, is AI and cloud computing. Every data center that is added for cloud computing and AI is equivalent to adding 30,000 homes to the electric grid. We're, we need more and more electricity given the AI demands that are immediately in front of us and happening. All very good for natural gas and natural gas demand. That's why I'm extremely enthusiastic about natural gas. And I challenge others to uh, tell me why that's wrong. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to all of our podcast sponsors. Your property is your legacy, so you should only leave it in the hands of a land management company who has a legacy of its own. If you own oil and gas interests or act as a fiduciary for those who do, you can find a long-term partner at Farmers National Company, who since 1929 has taken great pride in helping clients maximize the benefits of property ownership by providing turnkey management services and by working alongside them through generational transfers of specialized assets such as oil and gas interests and farmland. To learn more, visit fncenergy.com or reach out directly at energy at farmersnational.com. Since 2019, the Texas Mineral Company has been a leading ground game broker for minerals and non-op deals, closing over 120 transactions across the Permian, Scoop Stack, Haynesville, Bakken, Powder River Basin, DJ, and Eagleford. With deal sizes ranging from 50K upwards of 5 million, and 1.5 NRAs, upwards of 3,500 NRAs, the Texas Mineral Company can be flexible on where and how they can source your deal flow. For more information on how your team can work with the Texas Mineral Company, please email Toby Martinez at toby at thetexasmineralcompany.com. Scaling up your portfolio while minimizing GNA is the name of the game in the minerals and non-op space. Whether you're a brand new fund, an established team who's growing quickly, or a fully developed portfolio in harvest mode, Opportune's back office outsourcing team can help. Stop worrying about all the headaches that come along with day-to-day accounting and back office operations and contact Opportune today. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Over the past 20 years, Riverbend Energy Group has been the definitive leader in the non-op and mineral space where they are actively acquiring minerals in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, the Williston, and the Eagleford. Following their $1.8 billion sale of their non-op platform in 2022, they are also back actively acquiring non-op interests in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, and Williston. If you have minerals or non-op working interests in these areas that you would like to sell, then please visit www.riverbendenergygroup.com for more information. No, that's a really interesting comment on the the AI cloud computing, uh, you know, uh, forecast going forward and 30,000 homes. I'm sure you read that somewhere. Just a comparable metric basis it, in an AI cloud computing center, you know, are there thousands, millions, hundreds of thousands of those? Like what what is the runway for the additional, you know, units of that? that equate to an extra 30,000 homes. Just, I'm just curious, so, like what the total addressable market is for that kind of growth as it translates down to natural gas demand. Yeah, and I want to give you some very good statistics around it, but uh, 
you should follow me on Twitter and I'll come back with some very good stats around that. But to put it in context, and we're in the first inning of AI, in my opinion, the runway is massive. And if you talk about ways to play AI, obviously NVIDIA is, I think, the best performing stock of the year. I mean, adjacent to that literally is the natural gas and electric generation space and providing the electricity because we're in the first inning of the demand for data centers. I mean, it is a mad scramble for companies to benefit from AI. So to put it in context, I, I you're literally talking about tens of millions of homes being added to the grid if you equate it to data centers. So the runway is like, eh, you know, a hundred to a thousand X where we currently are. I much prefer specific numbers. So when you join Twitter, uh, I will, you'll go look at my handle and I will, you'll see that there'll be information there. Or I'll tell you when we're in person on October 10th at the Minerals and Royalties Authority uh, uh, event that uh, I believe uh, is being uh, put together. Awesome. And just for those listening, I'm not going to go into the excruciating details, but last year, you know, on the EIA website around November, they mentioned that three kind of near-term LNG projects are going to be coming on. Uh, Golden Pass, uh, I don't even know how to pronounce this, Placa Minas, and then Corpus Christi Stage 3. Those collectively will add 5.7 BCF of export capacity per day by the end of 2025. So like you said, the market is building that in. That's why the market's in Contango. There was a big announcement in July of this year, next decade, just got to FID. And, and that's going to add a, a substantial amount of, of export capacity in the future. And then in August of this year, Commonwealth LNG got formed a partnership with Kimridge that includes an offtake agreement. They're planning to be operational by 2027. So there's just, and there's plenty more projects out there, but it's, you know, the ball is in motion here. And you know, we're right around the corner from this this built-in demand and, and an uptick in natural gas. So being well positioned there is interesting. And you know, another thing too, which really kind of compounded the the downfall of natural gas pricing last year was Freeport LNG going offline. There was a fire in the facility in June of 2022, and it only got back online in February this year. And I I, I don't believe it's fully operational. It is exporting LNG, but you know, that is going to be additional capacity coming back at whatever timeline that plays out to be. So macro-wise, very constructive. If you don't mind me interjecting and just uh, a shout out to Gnome at Kimridge, you, you should definitely talk to Gnome if you haven't. Uh, extremely capable and knowledgeable around, uh, obviously, royalties, around natural gas, around LNG. You should definitely talk to Gnome. He's fantastic. Yeah, no, he's the uh, he's on the board of Cidio and very thoughtful individual. I've, I know Gnome from over the years and Kimridge is a very thoughtful group in particular. Um, everything they do is very strategic. It's not your traditional you know, back a bunch of portfolio companies and build a portfolio of 30 teams like an NCAP or an NGP. Not that there's anything wrong with that. They're just very much more tactical. And, um, you know, Cidio is a, a great case study in the mineral space. And and then just that that deal with Commonwealth is just a, a different part of the value chain, right? So I, I digress. Yeah, and I'm super, I mean, well, Bendel and uh, Henry and Gnome, like they're, like they're 
Great. And the reason in part I think they're great is my bias also being based in New York City. And we we really see things quite similarly in that you know, we ran a, a large EMP business, which we sold to Chevron in 2011. You know, we had an operating team based in Pittsburgh. We pioneered the Marcellus Shale, but we made capital allocation decisions, you know, based on our disciplined work. And Atlas Pipeline we built, we had an operating team based in Tulsa. Uh, but we made capital allocation decisions based on all of our work. And we've done a number of activist campaigns. So, I mean, we just really see the world quite similarly to those guys. So like those guys a lot, very thoughtful. But back to uh, to the point around, uh, around LNG and around uh, takeaway and natural gas is the, the reality is if you look back at, at Freeport, two BCF a day of LNG export was down from June through February, you're talking about nearly 700.7 TCF, right? 700 BCF. So 0.7 TCF of gas that otherwise would have come out of storage. Let's put that in context, 0.7. So we're going, yeah, we're going to end the storage season just around or just under 4 TCF. So even without a winter, we would have been at 3.3 TCF. So let's go backwards. We ended the storage season, the storage withdrawal season this last year around two, give or take uh, two TCF in the ground, had just Freeport, no winter, not much of a winter in the Northeast, had just Freeport not been offline, we would have been at roughly 1.3 TCF in the ground below the five-year average. Imagine if we actually had a normal winter. So like, I'm not a person who thinks, oh, gas is going to the moon this winter. It may. I don't know what, I don't know. I'm not a short-term person, but I do know structurally the dynamics are quite favorable for natural gas. Yeah. Listen, a lot of interesting signals on the oil price too. I think macro-wise, there's a lot of supporting factors for whether it's the inflationary environment, some of the things around LNG, whatever may be propping up commodity prices going forward. So I think being long minerals is a good position to be in here in, in the short to medium term. For Whitehawk, we are continuing to grow. We have access to hundreds of millions of dollars to acquire more assets from great people like Darren and others who have put together and done an amazing job of putting together world-class assets. And my job is to acquire from people like Darren and people who we did our first deal with in Appalachia is to buy more assets to the benefit of our investors. And I hope and you know, would expect to deliver great value to those folks. So that's a great winning situation for us because and this is where I was going to end with. We talk about energy and creating energy. My job, and when I think about what my value add, it's not just philanthropic, it's also to my shareholders. And I think of meetings I've had in individual homes where there's 40 people who invest, you know, invest and it's their personal money. This is not, these are not no name institutions. It's really their money and they're putting their confidence in Daniel Hers and the White Hawk team. And my job is to deliver for those folks. That's what I think about. And I know they have, they put their trust in me. I've always known that whether it was at Falcon, whether it was at Atlas Pipeline or Atlas Energy, that's what I think about. And I do my best every day to deliver for all of our investors. Daniel, always fun, my friend. Thanks again for coming on and looking forward to seeing you next month in Houston. 
Looking forward to it, Tim. Thank you so much for having me. Great talking to you as always. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties podcast is meant for informational purposes only. Tim Powell and the Minerals and Royalties Authority are not promoting any specific securities or investments, nor are they providing any type of investment advice. If you enjoyed the episode, then I encourage you to tune in more and also check out the Minerals and Royalties Authority YouTube channel. Thanks and see you next time.